Hey, for those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, uh, we are in a series titled uh, Q&A, as you can see on the screen. Uh, your questions, which means that this, the questions that we're answering in this series of sermons came from this congregation, and uh, it's been our responsibility as pastors to provide you at the, in the best way we know how with God's answers from his word. Today we're talking about the subject, death, what's next, and what's not. So let's begin with the question. The question that we're addressing this morning was was originally posed to me something like this. Do you believe, Pastor, do you believe in spirit guides? That is, do you believe that someone who has died can cross over and communicate with the living so as to express love, give reassurance, provide guidance to us for our lives? And... Uh, I think it's a popular question, actually. And I, I, from what I can tell, just reading our society, it's one that, that a lot of people um, have questions about, <clears throat> and even some Christians. And in order to provide a biblical answer to that question, I, I kind of feel the need to broaden the question first and, and to ask first what's next, that is, what's next on the agenda, according to God's word for us, when our souls finally depart our bodies and we die. So my intention in the time we have together is to seek first to answer that question and then having laid that foundation uh, to turn to uh, questions about what will and will not happen in the aftermath and some specific cautions for disciples of Jesus on this side of eternity. Now, I realize some of you are saying, sheesh, Jim, can't you, can't you talk about something a little lighter, you know? A little happier. Um, come back from vacation, you dive into some really heavy stuff. And, um, and, and my, my only answer is, you ask the questions, I'm just answering them. So it's my job. Hey, um, and, and I know that just I, I need to lighten this just a little bit, at least for the moment. So um, I became aware of this book by a guy named Joe Queen in Balsamic Dreams. And I, you baby boomers will appreciate the way this uh, the subtitle is given, A Short But Self-Important History of the Baby Boomer Generation. A Short But Self-Important History of the Baby Boomer Generation. I, maybe you're insulted by that. I don't know. But uh, I, I had to laugh uh, about this one section in a chapter that's kind of on the subject of death and funerals. And uh, because we have, we do have some baby boomers in the audience, maybe you'll appreciate this. And you who are younger can just roll your eyeballs and uh, click your tongues at us, baby boomers. Here, here's what he says. Another unfortunate baby boomer contribution to the mortuary arts is the theologically eclectic funeral service. You with me? Well, you're with me already, right? It, it has long been my belief that people should be buried in the rites of the religion least likely to embarrass them. But because baby boomers are all over the lot philosophy-wise, I have often had to attend services where the various liturgies not only war with each other, but sometimes cancel one another out. Because we baby boomers believe in nothing, we end up acting like we believe in everything. <clears throat> Funeral services thus become a religious smorgasbord. This is not good. Personally speaking, once I've heard the sparse Quaker prayer, and the lugubrious Kaddish reading and a couple of unpublished poems by some tribal elder from Manitoba, I don't have the energy left to gut out the seventh sutra of the sun. Often I come away from these services more confused and saddened than when I went in. First I'm told that my friend is just another form of energy. Then I find that he's up there looking down on us. No, that's not right. He's gone to a far, far better place. No, his spirit is breathing in the daffodils just outside the window. No, he's stone dead, so get used to it. One time I was so distraught upon returning from a spectacularly multicultural funeral that I went into my closet, yanked out a baseball bat, and handed it to my 14-year-old son. Gordy, I want you to make me a promise, I said. I want you to promise me that when I die, if anyone gets up at my funeral and mentions the I Ching, the Bhagavad Gita, or the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or if anyone even so much as suggests that I am not dead, but have just transformed myself into another form of energy, 
Or if anyone implies that I was just chomping at the bit to meet my maker, that I felt a tremor of bliss, that in those last weeks and months I almost seemed to be letting go, then please take this baseball bat and break their legs. And if anyone dares to mention the word sutra at my funeral, you have my permission to kill them. Cool, was my son's reply. (laughs) So real, so real. You know, another uh, well-documented characteristic of the baby boomer generation is that we we kind of cherish this myth that we're going to live forever. We're all going to stay young. We'll never die. Um, but but as I observe it, because I'm in the younger years of the boomer generation, there, there are a lot of us that are dying and in, in increasing numbers. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter once wrote, that it is the responsibility of the pastor to prepare his people to die well, therefore to prepare himself to die well, therefore to face up to the fact that as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, death is the destiny of everyone, and the living must take this to heart. So here I am, your pastor, doing the best I can to help you to prepare to die well, and myself as well. Death is the destiny of everyone. The living must take this to heart. So think with me for a few minutes about the fact of your upcoming death should Christ not return beforehand. In another place, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Visit any cemetery. The grave markers and the headstones loudly declare that truth. Nearly every one of them will feature the name of the deceased, the year they were born, and the year they died. Some will even include the actual dates. Your birth certificate indicates what time you came into the world on that day. And your death certificate provides the time that you went out on the day you died. In his beautiful prayer in Psalm 139, David acknowledges the truth that the days ordained for him and extending from him for each one of us were written in the Creator's book before any of them had occurred. God in his sovereign authority has appointed a specific limited number of days for each of us to live. For us, the living, we all know the day we were born, we celebrate that, most of us, when it comes around every year. None of us knows the day we will die, though. And yet, we surely will. Erwin Lutzer quipped in his book, One Minute After You Die, the statistics on death are impressive. So far, it's one out of one. Lutzer was echoing British author C.S. Lewis, who wrote nearly 50 years earlier, 100% of us die. And the percentage cannot be increased. As a matter of fact, the latest statistics indicate that 60.76 million people die every year worldwide. That translates to 5,063,333 per month. 1,168,461 per week. 166,923 die per day. 6,955 die per hour. 116 die every minute. So that in the 62nd span in which your death occurs, 115 other people across the globe will join you. Based on current averages, if you manage to live 70 years, 4.25 billion people will have died over the course of your lifetime. It kind of beggars the question, why me, doesn't it? And that means that just since the start of this worship service, around 3,500 people have closed their eyes on this earth and opened them again in eternity. For some, 
what they beheld when their eyes opened on the other side will have brought joy, will have brought comfort, will have brought, will have brought delight. And yet for many, many more, what they beheld in that moment elicited sudden shock, intense horror, and infinite, infinite regret. One of the first of the questions that come to our minds when we hear that someone has died is, what was the cause of death? How'd they die? And the potential answers to that question are many, but they tend to cluster around either sickness or injury, don't they? But God's word tells us the original and ultimate cause of death itself, which is sin. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, we we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. You shall surely die. And when in chapter 3 we we read that Adam and Eve disobeyed God's prohibition and, and ate of the fruit of that forbidden tree, what we witness in their lives and in their relationship are the initial symptoms of spiritual death. Inward shame, distancing from one another, hiding from God, blaming each other, And at the moment of their sin, the clock began ticking toward their eventual physical death as well. In time, each and all of us were included in the condemnation of sin. Paul wrote in Romans 5, Sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin. Death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In the very next chapter, Paul declared the awful, unavoidable, inescapable truth that the wages of sin, the just compensation of sin is death. What remains is that it is appointed for man to die once, not not to enter into an endless cycle of births and deaths and rebirths, but to die once, and after that comes judgment. So what's that going to be like? What's next in that moment when we breathe our last and in what follows? In 1646, the Westminster Assembly of the Church of England drafted what became known as the Westminster Confession. You can think of it as an extensive, very detailed articulation of Reformed theology and doctrine. Chapter 32 bears the title of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. In article one of that chapter, there is this clear, comprehensive, but concise statement. Follow along as I read. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal existence, immediately return to God who gave them The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Beside these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Scripture acknowledgeth none. This paragraph actually echoes a story told by Jesus of two men who were on two very different spiritual trajectories. It's recorded in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. You might want to open your Bible and turn there. Some call this story a parable. Uh, and, And in some ways it reads like, a parable, but it's set apart from all 30 of Jesus' parables by this one factor, that it includes a first name. Jesus actually tells this story not as if it's a parable, but as if it is historical and biographical. Follow along, and by the way, he he would be 
the only one who could tell this story in a historical and biographical way. Beginning of verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, in contradiction of Oprah Winfrey and others like her, not everyone is going to heaven. What can we learn from this story told by the Lord Jesus about what's going to happen when we die? First, I want to clarify that Jesus is not saying that Lazarus went to Abraham's side because he was poor and the rich man to Hades because he was rich. The Bible never, ever presents one's income level or socioeconomic status as the basis for either redemption or condemnation. The Bible teaches that our justification before God is by his grace alone, appropriated through personal faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The first thing that we can learn here is that when you die, your soul will take leave of your body and immediately go to one of two places. And there await final resurrection and judgment. And Jesus says that Lazarus was carried by angels to a place called Abraham's side. Why Abraham? Always thought that Peter would meet us at the pearly gates, right? According to all the stories. Why Abraham? Because Abraham is understood in the Bible to be the spiritual father of all who are justified by faith. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, what's the symbolic significance of Abraham's side? Some translations use the word bosom. Maybe a word that's gone out of, you know, vogue. Um... But if you go back to the old King James, for example, you'll see that word. The idea is an image of embrace, of intimacy, of security. But the rich man found himself in Hades. Jesus describes Abraham's side with the expressions good things and comfort. And by contrast, Hades is associated with bad things, thirst, anguish. Loneliness, flame. You may recall that the thief who was crucified on the cross next to Jesus said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I say to you today, today, not tomorrow, today you will be with me, not with St. Peter, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is 
another name for the place called Abraham's side or the bosom of Abraham. Included in Jesus' promise of paradise is that he would be there that very day. There would be no delay. And if if that wasn't enough, he would be there with Jesus. The Apostle Paul taught that for the believer in Jesus Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 9, he wrote, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Philippians 1, 20 to 23, Paul wrote, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is not loss, but gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, so that is for that is far better. See, the Bible never teaches that our souls, the inner being, will sleep as we await the resurrection. There are some groups that teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Neither does it teach that our souls will do time in a place called limbo or purgatory. Those of you with a Catholic background will appreciate that. That whole doctrine of purgatory is man-made. It was it was designed to extract more money from the pockets of Catholics. It's the idea that when you die, there are sins that you have not repented of, and so you you kind of work it off. You work it off. Problem is, it flies in the face of the sufficiency of Christ and his atonement at the cross. It says that what Jesus did wasn't enough. And the Bible never says that. At your death, it will be as if you close your eyes on earth and then instantly open them again in either paradise or in Hades. We will exist for a time without our bodies and in the presence of Jesus will no longer be subject to temptation and sin. When I was a kid, one of the things we, fun things we used to do in the summertime is just take our sleeping bags and throw them out on the back lawn and, and we just called it sleeping under the stars. Mom, can I sleep under the stars tonight? Well, I remember one particular night, I've never forgotten it, I don't think I ever will that uh, in the middle of the night I woke up and I was laying on my back and I I looked up at a a sky that was just blazing with stars. It it, It was just astonishing, really. And then I fell back asleep. And when I woke up, there was blazing sun. But I kid you not, it was as if I had blinked. I saw stars, I blinked, I saw light, blazing light. And I just have to believe that that's the way it's going to be when we die. That that we'll go asleep, we'll, we'll go to sleep in the darkness, we'll awake in the light. Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus also reveals that, that there will be no break, no discontinuity in our consciousness. Whether you go to paradise or you go to Hades, there will be no break. In paradise, you will still be fundamentally, as in Hades for that matter, I suppose, but in paradise, you'll still be fundamentally the same person as you are now on earth, although you will be sanctified and you will be glorified. In Hades, the rich man was able to recognize Abraham, whom he had never known as well as Lazarus, whom he had known. So notice also that he retained his memory of his five brothers. And it's clear that he still had great affection for them. How do we know that? It's because his emotional anguish in Hades was exacerbated as he contemplated the prospect of them also coming to that place of torment. What a powerful reminder that is. 
of the importance of sharing the gospel with our relatives, our other loved ones now while we have the opportunity to do so and while they still have time to respond. I think it's interesting, may, may actually just be a side note, that that the rich man continued to think of himself as superior to Lazarus and as if Lazarus should be subservient to him. Still the same old guy he used to be. Accordingly, he asked Abraham to, to send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool his tongue in hope beyond hope of lessening his anguish. And, and then he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house to warn his brothers. If you've ever wondered whether your loved ones who have gone before you into eternity remember you and love you, there's your answer. They do. And those who are with Jesus love you now with an even purer love than ever before. This story also answers the question of whether we'll recognize our relatives in eternity or whether they'll recognize us. But in that recognition, understand this, that there will either be elation or there will be anguish in the recognition. Pay close attention to the concluding interaction between the once rich man and Abraham in response to his request. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, Jesus himself, the one telling the story, would rise from the dead, wouldn't he? But those schooled in Moses and the prophets didn't receive him either. John 1 says, He came to his own, the Jews, and his own did not receive him. Notice also that Jesus is speaking to the power and the sufficiency of scriptures. Sometimes we look at the Bible and we say, is there another answer? The answer is no, there is not another answer. Notice that he's also emphasizing the necessity of submitting oneself to what the Holy Spirit has already revealed through the Scriptures. Don't miss the necessity of responding in faith to the one who defeated death and the grave on our behalf. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you received Him as your only Savior? John said, as many as received Jesus, to them, to them, God gave the right to be called the children of God. It's all about Jesus. Third, we learn here that paradise will be a place of comfort and community, but Hades will be a place of anguish and isolation. In my preparation for this message, I happened onto a video on YouTube titled, Eight Reasons Going to Hell Will Be Awesome. (laughs) I I thought it was kind of going to be a satire, right? Kind of a spoof. So I watched it. It was a talking head kind of video. The guy actually proceeded to enthusiastically describe why it was that he looked forward to going to hell. Um, Included on his list, and I won't read you the whole list, but included on his list was the tragically mistaken notion that in hell he would be with all of his friends. See, it may be that his friends will be in hell, But the idea that they'll all be together, that hell will be an endless party, isn't supported in Scripture at all. Even Gary Larson on the far side keeps getting it wrong. Instead, the Bible presents hell as a place of isolation, of ongoing loneliness, of darkness, of emotional anguish, of physical pain, and of perpetual torment. Again, the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, to the wicked indeed the grave is a prison where they are kept in close confinement until the resurrection, but to believers it is a place of rest where exempted from all pain and weariness they shall enjoy profound repose till the resurrection morn. 
Well, how does this story answer the question, will we have bodies? Well, the only way that this story indicates we have bodies is the pain in which the rich man found himself. But in writing to the church in Thessalonica, Paul wanted to encourage and instruct those who were waiting the soon return of Jesus. Remember, these are brand new believers. They're Gentiles. They don't have any biblical background. They were seeing people in their church dying, being buried. And the question arose in their minds, are they going to get to go to heaven? Is Jesus coming for them as well? Will they be included in the resurrection? So Paul wrote in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. It's a euphemism for death, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice in verse 14, he, he promises that God through Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're identified that way again in verse 15, those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 16, he calls them the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ. Who are they? They're, they're those believers who have died, who are with Jesus in paradise, and who have been waiting for this day when they will be reunited with their bodies and with the church, which is still alive on earth. God will bring Jesus, bring um, them with Jesus from paradise. I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my mental images of what the rapture will look like is just Jesus. What Paul is saying is that behind Jesus will be millions of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints who, who have died, who have been waiting for that day. Paul goes on, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So notice the progression he provides. First, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a three noises, three, three audible sounds, the, the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. What Jesus' cry of command is going to be, I don't know. Some people have, you know, thought, oh, he's just going to say, get up here, right? Maybe that's it. But cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, it's going to get noisy, but only momentarily. And the dead in Christ will rise first. I, when I think about this sometimes. I think about when I was a kid in the 70s and, and I'm playing the music a little loud in the bedroom and the, the windows are bowing out, you know, and the whole place is shaking and my mom comes and beats on the door and I can't hear her because because of the sound of the music and not the sound of music, but the sound of the music I was playing. And finally she opens the door and she says, turn that down, you're going to wake the dead. So it's going to get noisy when Jesus comes, but only momentarily. The dead in Christ will rise first. From where? Thought they were coming down from heaven. They are. But they're going to rise. Their bodies. From wherever their bodies have been. Or wherever, if you will, the parts of their bodies have been distributed. From graves and from tombs. From the soil. From the dust. From the sea. Even maybe from the atmosphere. We wonder about that, don't we? Here's my confidence that the God who created this 
seemingly endless universe possesses the sovereign and the infinite knowledge and power to call back every single molecule of your body and mine from wherever in the universe those molecules may wander following our deaths. We need not worry about that, though we can scarcely begin to understand it anyway. Then we who are alive, he says, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When the New Testament was translated into Latin, the Greek word harpazo, or caught up, was translated with the word raptura, the Latin word raptura, from which we get the word rapture. It's the same word from which comes the word raptor, a bird of prey. So if you'll allow it, picture an eagle as as it snatches up, you know, you can see the, the wings extended and it just snatches up its prey from the ground. In a similar manner, God's people will be raptured. We're going to be snatched up or caught up to be with Jesus. We who are alive will still be in these pitiful bodies, right? So we'll just get on up there and and we'll be joined together with them in the clouds as one church. Now to meet the Lord in the air. And so, Paul says, we will always be with the Lord. From that time and forevermore, we'll always be with the Lord, never again to be apart from him or from each other. And so, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes what our resurrection bodies will be like. And in verse 35, he asks, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he compares the physical body with a seed that is sown. Any of you gardeners here plant a garden this year? Planted a garden ever in your life? Does, does the seed you plant bear any resemblance to what grows from that seed? No. Sometimes the, the tiniest of seeds can grow this monstrous plant, and the biggest, gnarliest of seeds grows just a little one. There's just no predicting from the seed what it's going to be. That's what Paul is saying about our physical bodies in comparison to our resurrection bodies. A seed bears no resemblance to the plant that grows from it. In verse 42, he continues, So so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And in verse 49, he arrives at this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is Jesus. Our resurrection bodies will be like the resurrection body of Jesus. In Philippians 3, he says again, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. How are we going to change? Jesus is going to do it. The Apostle John echoed, Beloved, we are God's children now, and and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, there's, there's, there's going to be something that happens in that moment that we see Jesus that's going to affect that transformation, that that in that moment twinkling of an eye experience, we are going to be utterly transformed. So we may arise from the earth in in physical bodies, but I think by the time we get there, (laughs) we're going to be changed. Verses 51 to 54, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the suddenness and the immediacy of the moment of the rapture of the church in these words, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And as I mentioned recently, that's the that's the theme verse for the church nursery, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
Notice the, notice the time factor there. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The great Dwight L. Moody, Civil War era pastor, founder of the Moody Church in Chicago wrote this. Someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit shall live forever. So what's not going to happen? What's not going to happen? In the time I have left, having established that background, I I want to answer directly the question of whether the dead can cross over and communicate with the living and whether Christians should entertain the notion of spirit guides as resources for our lives. Now, I did a little internet search on the town with just the search word spirit guides. If if you Google that, you'll, you'll find more hits than you ever bargained for. Do a YouTube search and you'll be overwhelmed with the number of videos, the numbers of channels that that promote the the consultation of spirit guides. For example, here I'm just looking at YouTube, the the first things that come up. Your guides are here. Rise to the fifth dimension with your spirit guides. Three signs you're connecting with spirit guides. How to communicate with your spirit guides made easy. Spirituality on Gaia, spiritual awakening process. Can't hear your guides? Disconnect from this. How to connect to your spirit guides immediately, even when it feels impossible. These are 10 strange happenings that your spirit guide is trying to contact you. How to talk to your spirit guides. Connecting with your spirit guides. Be careful with spiritual guides. Channel your spirit guides. Let them help you to nine types of powerful spirit guides and how to call on them. Call in your guides. The guides speak channeled message that will change you. Thousands of hits. Some regard spirit guides is as uh, incorporeal beings that are assigned to us before we're born that just kind of help us, nudge us through our lives. And in that sense, that they think of them like guardian angels, and they kind of promote them, some of them, on that basis. Another school of thought presents them as ancestral spirits who can claim some sort of kinship or family relationship with you, such as your, your dear Aunt Matilda who died when you were still a child. Still others think that our close friends who have died may reach across the divide from the realm of the spiritual to communicate with us in a variety of ways. One site described a spirit guide as an evolved being who has agreed to support your spiritual evolution. Real spiritual guides, they say, are wise, they're compassionate, they're even funny. The general idea is that there exist out there these benevolent spirits who desire to help people or guide them throughout their lives. But despite these claims, I'm I'm here to tell you that spirit guides are anything but benevolent. They are anything but compassionate. They are anything but wise, according to the wisdom of God. One of those, one of the lists, or one of the videos on that list in the middle of it 
is, is a guy that said, I discovered that my spirit guides were actually demons. They are not the spirits of our dearly departed friends or relatives, neither are they ascended masters who have crossed over some mystical divide. They are what the Bible calls familiar spirits. You won't see that term in the ESV or the NIV, but go back to some of the older translations like the King James and you'll find that expression, familiar spirits. They're demonic. They don't announce their evil nature. They portray themselves as loving, as wise, as beneficial, really harmless. But as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In the world of the occult, a familiar spirit is recognized as a demonic entity. That is, that makes himself so familiar with an individual who has died that he can counterfeit everything about that person. Their voice, their memories, special moments in their lives, vocal inflections, everything. And at the same time, that that demon can become so familiar with his target that he can masterfully exploit them and bring them under control. So a person goes to a seance. And they say, well, that's that's Uncle Willie. I'd know him anywhere. Familiar spirit. Demon. Over and over again in the Bible, God has warned his people about the dangers of dabbling in the spirit world. When the children of Israel, following the Exodus, were entering the promised land, God spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Well, we kind of know what what most of those terms mean, but what's what's a necromancer? Necromancy is the practice of magical sorcery involving communication with the dead by summoning their spirits as apparitions or as visions for the purpose of witchcraft imparting the means to to foretell future events, discovery of hidden knowledge, for example. Leviticus 19.31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 26 and 7, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus twenty twenty seven: a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light to offer. So from this really very brief study of what's next after death, I hope you've realized 
at least this one thing, that, that when a person has died, there is no return. There are two destinations, Hades and paradise. Now, someone asked me between services, what's the difference between Hades and hell or paradise and heaven? And the best I can, best mental image I can give you is that paradise is the lobby of heaven and Hades is the lobby of hell. But once in the lobby, there's no going out the front door. Two destinations. No crossing over. Either from Hades to paradise or hell to heaven or or from the world of the dead to the world of the living. A great chasm, Jesus said, has been established between here and there, between the living and the dead. Neither are the spirits of dead human beings floating around in the ether in some kind of intermediate state. They're either confined in Hades awaiting judgment or they're in paradise. So content, so comforted, so fulfilled that they would never exchange heaven for earth. And by the way, with apologies to those of you who love ghost movies, that means there's no ghosts. What do you call apparitions? You call them demons. What do you call spirits that are causing havoc? You call them demons. There is no Casper the Friendly Ghost. Sorry. So if a spirit, an entity, a guide, seeks to make contact with you, don't you go looking to make contact. If they they seek to make contact with you, you can be sure that it isn't your dear departed friend or relative. Neither Neither is it a benevolent spirit, nor should you as a Christian dabble in these things. They are real. They are demonic. They are a diabolical distraction. And they are forbidden to the people of God. The Apostle John warned us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. I want to conclude with this ultimate question. Are you ready? Are you ready? See, none of us knows when we've seen the sun rise on the final day of our lives here on earth. Not one of us. Each of us is one breath, one beat of the heart away from death. Fatal illness, sudden accident, traumatic injury, And we pass through the veil from time to eternity. So let me ask you again, are you you ready? Are you confident, should you die today, that your soul would pass directly into the presence of Jesus? I like to put it this way. Have Have you transferred your trust to him and what he accomplished for you at the cross as he offered the full and final sacrifice for all of your sin. Are you confident that your sins are forgiven? That you're reconciled with God? That you've received the gift of eternal life and heaven is your destination? Alistair Begg imagined a conversation between the thief crucified on the cross next to Jesus and an angel at the gates of heaven. Here's what he said. Think about the thief on the cross. I I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how'd that shake out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never been baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet... And yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? 
That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. So so they go to the supervisor angel and he comes back and and he asks, so, so we got a few questions for you, sir. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Guy says, never heard of it in my life. And what about, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. The guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, the supervisor angel asked him, on what basis are you here? And he answers, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. The man on the middle cross said, I can come. See, that's the gospel. Put your faith in the man on the middle cross. Trust what he says. Act on it. The promise of Jesus is that whoever, 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 whoever believes in him, not just as a vague general kind of notion of spirituality, whoever believes in him will not die and spend eternity in hell but will instead have everlasting life. He didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. He didn't come into the world to condemn you. He came into the world to save you. Evidence of that fact is that you're sitting here hearing this message. Jesus is the only one who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before God's glorious presence with great joy, Jude said. Well, I've quoted Richard Baxter twice already, so why not one more time? I guess it's Richard Baxter Day. He was a hymn writer as well as a pastor. And in one of those hymns, as he reflected on his hope of heaven, he concluded in the final verse, My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. It is enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Are you ready? I hope you are. Let's pray as we close. Let's bow our heads together. And as as you bow your heads, I'm just going to pray a prayer. This, This is not a magical prayer. This is not a mantra. This is not anything other than just talking from your heart to God. That's what prayer is. It's just talking to God. He isn't impressed with flowery speech. He listens to the cries of our heart. So I'm going to pray a prayer, and if it's your desire from your heart today to transfer your trust to Jesus. Maybe you'd pray this prayer quietly along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die in my place. I recognize my utter need for your forgiveness. I I recognize my utter need for a Savior, and I realize that Jesus is the only one that could solve the problem of my separation from you. So here I am, and I'm I'm trusting in you. Don't know all the words to say. Don't know a lot of things. But I want to trust in that man on the middle cross. And I want to follow him one day into heaven. So come into my life. Forgive my sins. Make me the person that you want me to be. And one day, when you come, don't pass me by, but take me home to be with you and with all of your people. And I pray it in the name of Jesus, my new Savior. Amen. 
you'll uh, maybe just take one of those cards off the back of your chair and and just write on it. I transferred my trust to Jesus today, something like that, so that I'll know that you made that decision. And I'm not going to sign you up for a series of emails or anything like that. I just want to celebrate with you. I just want to rejoice with you that you've entered in to the family of God. Or if you want to, just come up and tell me. Somebody told me between services that, that he had trusted in Christ today. Made my day. Makes my life when that happens. Amen.